invite you to turn in your Bible with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter 23. We're going to um, look at verses 50 this morning through chapter 24, verse 12. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 23, verses 44. This, of course, is uh, the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and Luke has some wonderful uh, lessons and truths and uh, challenges for us in uh, these verses. encourage you to come to the Word of God this morning and to the preaching of that Word with uh, expectation that the Lord has something to, uh, to say to you this morning. Luke chapter 23, let's begin reading at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed. Jesus, of course, is on the cross. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all uh, his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man sent, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed uh, their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh God in heaven, you are the God who gives um, sight to the blind, and Father, you are able to do that this morning here. We need to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And I pray, Lord, this morning that by your spirit, uh, that would take place. And we would see all his truth, his love, and his grace for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
If you've been uh, paying attention as we're going through the Gospel of Luke, you are uh, maybe have noticed a reoccurring theme. Uh, Luke uh, closes out his Gospel with a um, just a series of coming to faith stories. Uh, we are, because we're made this way, we're people who love stories. And uh, there are certain stories that we maybe particularly enjoy. Maybe you enjoy um, mystery stories. Maybe you enjoy uh, romantic stories. Um, these are coming to faith stories. And, and they're happening repeatedly, one right after another, as Luke comes to the end of his gospel. And so you have the thief on the cross coming to faith. You have the Roman centurion saying, this man was innocent, this man was the son of God. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, as we see this morning. Uh, the women uh, come to a deeper faith, and the disciples who do not believe uh, also will come to faith. Uh, next week, Lord willing, or whenever we get to, uh, I think it's next week, uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus. There's two men who do not believe, and they come to faith in a resurrected uh, Christ. You just see it happening over and over and over. And the question that, um, that raises is, why does Luke conclude his gospel this way? Sinclair Ferguson, in uh, his uh, sermon on this text, just makes the point that if we want to understand what Luke is doing, we have to ask, um, what's the audience that Luke has in mind? To whom is he writing? What's his purpose? And of course, we're told the purpose that Lucas has in mind. We're told his audience, his audience is Theophilus. Chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. It seemed good to me, he says, uh, having followed all of these things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning, concerning the things that you've been taught. And Ferguson makes the point that Luke is not just writing a biography about Jesus, interesting factoids about the man called Jesus. He's not trying to communicate information, merely. What he's trying to do is to uh, give Theophilus certainty concerning the things that he has been taught, the certainty of a true, living, life-changing faith. It's interesting, Theophilus, uh, it's a Greek name uh, made up of two different Greek words, theos, God, and uh, philos, friend or love. So his name sort of means a friend of God. And, uh, and yet, uh, people uh, also think that he was probably a pretty important guy, most excellent Theophilus, most excellent often a term that is used for uh, statesmen or just wealthy men. Some have suggested maybe he was Paul's lawyer. Uh, as Paul is on trial before Caesar, we don't, we don't know, but he seems to be a person of some status and stature, and he has been taught, maybe by a Paul himself. You remember when Paul was in prison, he was talking to everyone, the prison guards, and, and if Theophilus was his lawyer, undoubtedly, Paul was explaining to him the truth about Jesus Christ. He's been taught. But those ideas and truths and facts have not become yet, for Theophilus, a living, life-changing faith. And Luke wants his friend to move from being a Theophilus, friend of God, to Christophilus, friend of Jesus Christ. You see, friends, there's a way of believing that um, doesn't really change the way that, that you live, the way that you think, the way that you feel. 
Uh, someone just told me a story recently of, of a man who um, um, walked across the Niagara Falls on a cable. And then he took a wheelbarrow and he did it. And then he put, filled the wheelbarrow with bricks and he did it. And, and there's a crowd that's standing there watching. And, and uh, the man finally gets back to the shore and he says to another man standing there watching, he says, do you believe that... Um, I could carry you in that wheelbarrow across the falls. And the man says, well, based on what I've seen, yeah, I think you probably could. And the performer said, well, great, jump in and let's go. And the man said, not in your life. (laughs) Because whatever he believed in principle was only in principle. He wasn't about to put it into practice. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, that every one of us will find that there are places uh, in our faith life where we believe things, and we do believe them, but we believe them in principle. And it, it, it hasn't really broken through into practice. Uh, we believe, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good for those that love God and, called her and are called according to His purpose. We, we believe that. We'll promise uh, each other that we believe that. And yet when things uh, go um, contrary to how we would like, we grumble and complain. Whatever we believe in principle is not being practiced. We believe that God is sovereign and He's good and we believe that He loves us. And that if God is for us, who can be against us? We don't need to be afraid of anything, and yet we're, we're afraid of lots of things. We're afraid of losing things. Anxiety maybe grips us. Uh, we believe that people need to hear about Jesus, and we, and we know, we, 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 we understand that, that people come to faith by hearing, and, and so we believe that we really have a responsibility to talk to people. And and that because God is for us, we don't have to be afraid. And yet when the opportunity comes, we clam up. We're afraid. We shrink back. Don't want to sound foolish. Don't want to be rejected. Don't want to be mocked. Isn't that our our experience? So that that in so many different ways, the, 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 the faith that we profess is not actually transforming behavior and and emotions and and desires. But what what we need to realize is that there there is a way of believing that does those things. There's a way of believing that actually does give you joy and peace in times of trial. So you can say with the Apostle Paul, I've learned to be content. Not that it's not hard. He'll, He'll speak about how hard it is. But there's a faith that actually gives joy and peace in times of trial. There's a faith that gives courage in place of fear and boldness when we have an opportunity to talk about Jesus. There's a faith that can actually make that happen in your life and my life. We've seen other people live this way. Have you ever just watched someone um, live out their faith in that bold, practical, transforming way and thought to yourself, that's what I want. Well, how do you get that? Well, let's, let's observe and follow the story. As Luke leads us into these uh, stories of people coming to a deeper faith. First, the secret disciple. Just put ourselves in the context again. Jesus Christ has died. Uh, the spear has been thrust through his side and blood and water have poured out. And uh, it's, it's evident that he's died. And the women are watching. We're told that verse 49. 
And the question they they must be asking themselves is, what now? Because the common Roman practice for a a criminal crucified on a cross was to leave the body there uh, to rot and let the birds and the animals uh, pick away at it. It was was the ultimate end of the the death of a cursed person. And... um, so that's, that's one possibility for the body of Jesus, but the, the chief priests and the elders came to Pilate and asked for the bodies to be removed because it's Passover Sabbath coming up, and, and uh, they, don't, they don't want the, the sight of Jesus there maybe to be stirring up anything, and so they asked them, the bodies to be removed, and they would most likely then be, um, be thrown into the dump, the city dump, which was the grave of the wicked. Isaiah prophesied that he had been assigned a grave with the wicked. And so as the women are watching, uh, these are the, the possibilities. The, the, the body belongs to the Roman state. It doesn't belong to family members. It doesn't belong to, uh, to these women. They have no ability to affect any change or any, uh, the outcome is not in their hands whatsoever. And undoubtedly, they're going to want to give Jesus the proper burial, and, and yet what, how, can they, how can they do it? Can you just imagine the, the overwhelming frustration and the grief of that moment? And then out of the shadows steps this man um, who actually can do something. He's influential. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He is, he's got influence. He has access to Pilate. And so Joseph of Arimathea, one of the great surprise stories in the gospel uh, we don't know anything about him, but we've never read of him beforehand. We won't read of him again afterwards, and yet all four gospel writers include his story, and we know different things from the different accounts. We know, for instance, that he's wealthy. Uh, Matthew tells us that. We know that he was a respected member of the council. So the council is the Sanhedrin, 70 men, the most powerful men in the Jewish community. It's uh, sort of like being a U.S. senator. It has that status. John tells us that he was a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews. That he believed that Jesus was the Christ, but he was not afraid to let anyone know uh, about that. He was, there was simply too much at stake, too much he could lose. But we do know that he was a good man, a godly man, who was looking for the kingdom, and he had not consented to the decision. Luke tells us that. But now, you see, something has happened to this secret disciple, this fearful disciple. His faith is going to move from a private um, conviction to a public confession. Something compelled him to move and act publicly to stand with Jesus. Mark says that uh, Joseph took courage and went to Pilate. He's He's publicly now going to take a stand for a crucified criminal. He's going to publicly take a stand against the vote of the Sanhedrin and against the, uh, the permission of Pilate. And it's going to have potentially devastating impact in his life. His future and his family are, are very likely going to be impacted by this and impacted profoundly. But you see, he simply can't be a secret disciple any longer. Something's happened to him. 
John tells us that another man joined him, another secret disciple by the name of, uh, a man by the name of Nicodemus. You've heard of Nicodemus. We, we heard of him back in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, the one who comes to Jesus by night for fear of the Jews and has a conversation. Nicodemus uh, comes to help. But these men, and, and Luke is focusing on Joseph, he's willing now, you see, to publicly state that he, uh, he, he's repudiating the verdict of the Sanhedrin, and he's declaring his allegiance to Jesus Christ. And whatever loss would come his way, whatever uh, demotion, whatever public scorn, whatever personal loss, well, he had once feared to lose those things. That's why he kept quiet, but he's not afraid any longer. The fear has been overcome. And my question is, how? By what? Because I want to know that for myself. I want to I have that uh, happen more and more in my life. How do these men move from fear <coughs> to boldness and courage? They were believers, we know, right? Before Jesus died, Joseph believed, but it wasn't the kind of faith that made him willing to lose everything for Christ, and now that's changed. And we're going to find in the gospel stories, that's a reoccurring theme. The disciples were exactly the same. They believed Jesus was the Messiah, but when push came to shove, and when the, when the soldiers showed up, and when there was a price to pay, they fled. They didn't have the kind of faith that would make them actually uh, willing to pay whatever the price to identify with Jesus. And yet soon, they're going to be glad to die for Christ. That, that's a significant move. How does it happen? Well, it's, I think we just have to acknowledge this is the kind of faith that um, we find in Scripture. It's the kind of faith that we want. It's the kind of faith that if, if you're a child of God, you want this kind of faith. Don't you want to be bold? Aren't you tired of being afraid to share your faith and afraid of what people think and, and afraid of the future? And friends, we have to recognize that, that as we live in an increasingly secular and hostile society, there's going to be prices to be paid for being a believer, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Are you ready for that? Are you ready to... To pay a price to be known and named as, as a, a follower of Jesus Christ? So how do we get that kind of bold faith that throws caution to the wind, that, that uh, is able to overcome fear and joyfully stand with and for Jesus Christ? Well, I think we see here that, that knowledge has to move to a conviction, and conviction is formed by love. I, verse 53 is, a, is one of, it's just a magnificent verse. It's, it's easy to miss because we're, we're just 21st century people. And it's hard for us to imagine what it would mean for Joseph of Arimathea to do what he does in verse 53, where he takes the body of Jesus. This is a wealthy, respected leader, a Jewish man, robed in his finery, he, he carries, in a sense, his position and his status uh, like he wears his, his clothes. It's always there. And there are, there's certain protocol for men of position, and specific for Jewish men of position. And one of those things, you don't touch a dead body, not a Jewish godly man. 
Not the day before Passover Sabbath. You defile yourself when you touch a dead body. But beyond that, this is just not work that a man of position would be about. This is for slaves and soldiers and maybe for women. And yet there's Mr. Joseph. There at the cross, prying the hands and the feet of Jesus from the nails. Washing away the blood, the water, the sweat. Wrapping that body in a linen cloth and then laying it in his own tomb. It is an incredibly humbling scene for this, this man of position. I mean, Joseph it, is declaring to all the watching world that he loves Jesus. You don't throw away your position, your power, your reputation, your life in the community. You don't throw that all away for a dead body. But you will for love. You will for love. And whatever Joseph had believed about Jesus prior, it was now love that compels him to act. And you find that throughout the New Testament, don't you? Paul says um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 14, Christ's love compels us. The verb he uses is the verb to seize. That, that love has seized him and his fellow workers. And that love, you see, casts out fear. That's what John says. That's what love does. It casts out fear. Well, how did this happen for this wealthy guy? This, this secret believer? Well, it, it happened the way it always does, by looking unto Jesus. He had been observing Jesus, watching Jesus, listening to Jesus, and, and then, and then uh, holding his Bible as he knew it up against the truth about uh, the person of Jesus Christ, and they meshed. And he was convinced this one, this miss man was not a mere man, that this was the son of God. And, and, and yet fear held him until the day Jesus died. And somehow I, when Jesus died, I think Joseph found that he loved him. He loved this man. He didn't know yet about the, the resurrection, but he, but he loves Jesus and for love's sake gives away his reputation and position to serve Christ. It's a wonderful, beautiful story. Be just uh, wonderful when we're in a new heaven and a new earth to walk through this with Joseph himself and, and let him tell us the story. Well, there's another movement in, in Luke's account here, and that's the watching women. Because while Joseph's story is a story about um, faith becoming convinced, bold love... The story of the women is a story of love becoming bold, convinced faith. One of the, uh, one of the great evidences that the gospel is, is an authentic account, not a religious story uh, created by a group of people or by the church, as Dan Brown would have you believe. Um, it, one of the greatest evidences is the gender of the key witnesses. No one in first century Palestine would have dreamed of making women the key witnesses. They're not just witnesses. They, they are the key witnesses. They're the only ones who see everything. They watched him die. We read that in, in verse 49. They watched him being buried, Luke tells us um, in verse 55. The women who had come from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. 
They watched him die. They went and followed. They saw the tomb. They looked and they saw how his body was laid. Then when on the first day of the week, chapter 24, verse 2, they found the stone rolled away. Verse 3, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And they heard the message of the angels, verses 4 through 7. They watched all of it. They're the only eyewitnesses to every event. They're the key witnesses. You see, and Luke is pointing this out again because he wants Theophilus to recognize the veracity, the historical truth of these events. This is eyewitness testimony from godly women. We know their names. Luke might very well have interviewed them. It's wonderful. People have this idea that, that the Christian faith is sort of vague, generic, it's religious, it's spiritual. And, and Luke's just saying, no, no. These things happened. You have more reasons, to, or as many reasons, to believe in the reality and the person, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as you do in the person of George Washington. We know this happened. But notice how Luke doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, listen, here's the eyewitnesses. You know, deal with it. Deal with the facts. But as he tells his story, it's, it's, it's fascinating what he does. See, so he tells us the women are perplexed, verse 4. Uh, it's a strong word. They are confounded. They don't know what to do with the facts. How do you make sense of Jesus, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And now he's nailed to a cross. How do you make sense of a Jesus who says to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And now he's dead. How do you make sense of that? And now he's buried. And there's no Jesus to come and raise him. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely overwhelming in its confusion. They're confounded. And they'd spent their Sabbath, the last Sabbath, they didn't know that, the last Sabbath of the Old Testament, weeping, wondering, confused, waiting for the morning so they could go back and anoint Jesus' body properly and then they go to the tomb and they knew where it was one of the one of the stories that was spread around and people still is that the women went to the wrong tomb that's why it was empty well no they saw the tomb they knew exactly where they were going and and, and they go there and the stone is rolled away and immediately right there red flags are popping up something is drastically wrong why is, the, why is the stone rolled away? And then they go in and the body's not there. Remember what, what Mary says? And she's weeping and weeping and, and she turns and she thinks the gardener's there and, they say, and he says, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've put him. You see, she's, her, her, her mind is trying to wrestle. How do you make sense of these facts? And so that's where they are, trying to, trying to put the pieces together. They're perplexed, and in that state of perplexion, the, 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 the English here, it's hard to get the sense of the Greek term. Um, 
you know, so while they were perplexed, it just, they were in, a, in a, just a status of confusion, being confounded and perplexed, completely overwhelmed, not knowing how to make sense of what they were seeing. And then the angels show up. And it's fascinating, again, what, what Luke does here, because we're going to find that by verse 10, these women have become convinced believers. And once again, we want to ask the question, how did that happen? It's interesting that in John's account and Mark's account, it happened by sight, where Mary Magdalene specifically saw Jesus. And seeing Jesus came to this convinced faith. That's not how Luke tells the story. He doesn't tell that part of the event. Luke points us to something else as the foundation for their faith. And what he points us to is the word of Christ. So the angels speak to the ladies and they rebuke them. The angels meet this group of poor, overwhelmed, confused, frightened, perplexed women. And they say, what, what, what are you doing here? Why do, you, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? The angels couldn't be more specific. They say, you should not be here. Why not? Because Jesus told you exactly what was going to happen, not once, not twice, at least three times that we can find in the Gospels where Jesus specifically said, I must go to Jerusalem, and when I'm there, I'm going to be killed by the leaders, and on the third day, I will rise. And he talked about the sign of Jonah and about building the temple in three days. Well, this was the third day. Why weren't they at home waiting for him to stop by? Don't you remember what he said? That's what the angels say. It's like, hello? Don't, don't you remember? Didn't he say in Galilee? You see, friends, biblical faith is concerned with historical facts, things that can be seen and experienced and were, but it is founded on something deeper than sight and experience. It's founded on the living, enduring word of God. You'll see exactly the same principle when Jesus meets the two men on the road to Emmaus after he was raised from the dead. These are men walking along, and, and they're very sad, and Jesus comes along, and they don't recognize who he is, and Jesus says, why are you so sad? And they say, well, where, you, where have you been? Haven't you heard? Jesus was crucified. He's dead. We, we had believed, we had hoped that this was going to be the one to deliver Israel. Now, what does Jesus not do? He doesn't go, no, no, hey, guys, it's me. He doesn't. He could have. I'm alive. See, touch my hand. Touch my arm. See, it's me. He doesn't do what he does with Doubting Thomas. He doesn't even say, you need to go talk to, uh, to, to Mary Magdalene. She's got something to tell you. 
He doesn't send them, you see, to their sight. He sends them to the scriptures. And so beginning with the Moses and the law and the prophets and going all the way through, he shows them from their Bible that the Son of Man must be crucified and buried and raise, rise again from the dead. Why does he do that? Because, you see, this is what interprets the facts. This is what interprets the facts. Man does not live by facts alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that's true for everyone. It's true for, the, for these poor women. They did not know how to make sense of the facts until you get to verse 8. Then they remembered what he said. Now everything falls into place. You'll see the same thing with the disciples. Uh, the women come to them and, 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 and they share the, everything that they just heard and seen. And what do the disciples do? Well, they do what the disciples generally do. They, they miss it. Uh, it was to them as idle words. We know that Peter and John got up and ran to the tomb. And John went in and saw the cloth lying there, and John believed. And Peter also has, in some sense, believed, but it's not fully formed faith. John will uh, tell us in, in chapter uh, 20, verse 8, uh, they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You see, John's doing the same thing. They just had what they could see. And they're trying to make sense of it. And that's how Luke ends the story. He ends the story with Peter going home marveling. In other words, Peter is trying to connect the dots. Uh, his eyes have said the tomb is empty. He's got the, the women talking about um, Jesus has been raised. And, and um, he thinks it's true, but he's, he's trying to work it out. He's trying to figure it out. He's left, he's left pondering and marveling and wondering, and Luke stops the story. Why? Because that's where Theophilus is. He's been told the story. He knows the facts. And he might even be pondering. He might be marveling about it. But he has not yet come to a convinced faith. Where he's willing to publicly stand with Jesus. Whatever the cost might be. And for Theophilus the cost might be significant. And so that's where Luke brings him. And that's where Luke leaves him. And did it, did it ever happen? Did, did Theophilus ever come to a convinced faith, a, a life-changing love for Jesus? We don't know. But that's not really the most important question. The most important question is, have you? Have you? You see, you, most likely, most of you, you, all of you know the story. You know the facts. You could tell the story to anyone. But you never do. Why, why is that? Well, fear. Shame. Or maybe we're just not that convinced. You see, um, can you say this morning, friend, can you say about your life and your heart and your faith, can you say that your faith is being filled with a love 
for Jesus Christ and a conviction about who he is and why he came that, that is transforming you, it's changing you, so that you find that there is a genuine heart sorrow when you sin, not because you've just broken a rule, but you've sinned against a beautiful Savior. And, and that you find there's a, there's a deep, growing thankfulness. You're just thankful that God has loved you in Jesus Christ and Jesus gave himself for you. And, and along with that, then there's a, a hunger to know him and a desire to, to serve him. You look at your life and you realize all the things that you do to serve yourself are pointless. It's just, it's just meaningless. But if you could do something that would, that would serve Jesus Christ, if you could in some little, little way be useful to, to somehow show that he's worthy of worship and praise and obedience, if you could do that, if you could just love your wife well and submit to your husband and, and be faithful in, in your calling as a parent or, or, be, or be true in, in your workplace, if, if there's just something you could do to honor Jesus, oh, that would be worth it. Because you love him. And you're finding as you go through life and you face trials and God is faithful, you're finding that this love is, is more and more driving out fear. Driving out fear of scorn, fear of what people think. Who cares what people think? Well, well how does this happen? How, if it's happening in your life, how is it happening? Well, it happens the way it always happens. By looking unto Jesus. By looking unto Jesus and his love for you and, and conviction is, is, you see, joined with love and that changes your life. I read a, an article recently. Uh, the title just captured my eye. It, it, it's written, it, the, the title is this, What Happened When My Daughter Saw Me Kiss My Wife? It's a Christian man, writes this article explaining how he and his wife, um, normal young Christian couple, um, were madly in love and completely naive about how selfish they actually were. And then they get married and um, the strife starts and the, the arguments and the selfishness is just really present and it's ugly. And uh, God in his grace is using that to humble them and convict them. And as they begin to confess their sins to each other and, um, and, and forgive one another, th there's a growing affection, just kindness, and, and, and gratitude, that, that's, that's happening in their marriage. And the point of the article is what that was doing for their children. They had two little girls, five and seven. Let me just read a little part, a little part of that article. It says, one day we were all listening to a, a playlist of Disney songs when the sentimental love song, I See the Light from Tangled, uh, came on. I walked over to my wife, who was in the kitchen, took her in my arms, and started dancing with her slowly. I could tell it caught her off guard and embarrassed her a little. It came out of nowhere. Thank goodness she stayed in my arms and danced with me anyway. As the song approached the final chorus, I looked in my peripheral vision and suddenly realized we weren't alone. Our daughters, who were five and seven, were standing there watching us in silence. The song approached the end, and as the strings played the last notes, I decided to give the girls a Hollywood ending. I took my wife's face in my hands and kissed her. After I pulled away, I looked over and saw my oldest daughter's face lit up with adoration and her eyes filled with tears. Then she came over, buried her face in my wife's legs, and cried. Why are you crying? 
my wife asked. I can't explain it, she said. Can you at least give me one word to describe how you're feeling, I asked. My daughter paused, looked up at us, and through her tear-stained eyes said, loved. My friends, that is the experience that you will have when you really believe the gospel. When you really, when you really believe it. That God has loved you in Christ. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made you alive together with Christ even when you were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul prays for this in Ephesians 3, doesn't he? That you might have the power together with all the saints to grasp the height and depth and width and length and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. My question to you this morning is, do you know that? Where does your faith need to move? Where does it need to move? It might, like Joseph of Arimathea this morning, it might need to move from love, from knowledge to a love, a convinced love that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he gave his life for you. And you don't care what people think. You don't care what your flesh says, what the world says. Uh, you are committed to identifying and serving this Jesus. Maybe you're like the women and and you live a lot by what you see and what you watch. And, and maybe your faith just needs to come to rest on biblical conviction. Your love needs to become rooted in what God has said in a way that empowers you and comforts you and transforms your life. I don't know where your faith has to move. I know where mine does, and it's probably all of this. But where does yours have to move? And I'm going to invite you to, to talk to God about that. That this does not just become a story that you heard. But you have a sense that there is a deeper truth for you to know, a deeper faith for you to experience. A deeper um, conviction and a deeper love, a, a walk with Christ that's more maybe than you know today. And if God's already given you this beautiful grace of, of growing confidence and love for Jesus Christ, then just pray, Lord, keep doing it. Keep doing it. Because one day we're going to see him face to face. And on that day, faith becomes sight. And the love will be the overwhelming reality we live in forever. But let's pray that God helps us to know that more and more today. To the glory of his grace. Amen. God in heaven, you know every person here. You know our names. You know the day we were born. You know the day that we will die. And you know every inclination, every motive, every bit of unbelief, every bit of spiritual deadness. Oh God, have mercy on us. Show us Christ. Father, show us Christ so that we know experientially your love for us. And that the life that we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the one who loved us and gave his life for us. And that love, the love of God for us and our love for our Savior would more and more be the, the compelling power of our life. 
and the scriptures would, would, would be alive with the words of our God and we would remember them and our faith would be rooted not in the things that we see and, and our puny ability to comprehend them or make sense of them, but, but that our faith would be molded by and rooted and established in the word of God. Oh, God in heaven, help us to be continually looking unto Jesus and, to, and looking unto him, Lord, oh God, to love him. I pray, Lord, for any who are not converted this morning. Maybe they're like Theophilus. They know the story. They don't know Jesus. Not this way. Father, I pray that today would be the day they, they simply ask, Jesus, show me who you are. Show me your glory. Help me to believe. I want to know you. And Father, I pray that you'd give the faith, the, 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 the gift of faith. Bless us, Lord. Bless us. We thank you that you've loved us and that you will love us to the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.